last couple of weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 8, and we've been looking at the idea of belonging to Christ and what that means and what the implications of that are. And uh, we're down basically to verses 12 and 13 today. And uh, last week, we looked if God's Spirit uh, dwells in us as believers, you belong to Christ. And though our physical body uh, will die, God will raise your body from the dead. And that was in the previous verses. And we basically talked a little bit about that if you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, that is a mark, as uh, Dan referred to, that you belong to Christ. And uh, we who are in the Spirit, who belong to Christ, are still subject to physical death, even though the Spirit has given us new life. This body will still one day die pending the Lord's return. Um, But we have a promise from our risen Lord that uh, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also resurrect our mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in us. And we left off there in verse 11. And so today we want to look at verses 12 to 13, and so you can follow along with me as I read these two verses. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Today I want to look at... Basically, you need to be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's a quote from John uh, Owen, who was, uh, wrote a book that our men went through years ago called The Mortification of Sin. Mortification referring to killing sin. And as believers, there's one thing that we all know that we deal with probably on a daily basis is sin. Even though Christ gives us victory, Christ has defeated the enemy and death and sin, we still live in a mortal body. We still live in a sin-stained, fallen world. And so we still deal with sin as believers on a daily basis. And the answer is, The question that people are asking, well, how can we defeat sin as believers? How can we get rid of sin as believers? Well, I have good news and bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. (laughs) Sin's going to be with you till the day you die. As long as you're in this body. Um, As long as you're here in this sin-stained world, you're going to have to deal with sin. The good news is, is that we can have victory over sin that we are not held captive by sin any longer. We're going to be celebrating communion here in a few moments. And the one thing that that reminds us of is that when Christ went to the cross, that he was victorious over what? Sin and death. That we no longer have to give in to the sin that once dominated our lives. And it's unfortunate today because even in the church of Christ we see Christians struggling and they come up with all kinds of different ways to try to deal with sin in their lives. 
And what Paul is telling us here in these verses is, look, there's, there's one way that you can deal with sin. And he's going to share that with us. But before we get there, I want us to think a little bit about some of the ways that we try to deal with sin. Because we all have some degree fallen and given in to sin. Sometimes we look at a method. Sometimes we think, well, a certain method can help me defeat sin in my life. Um, certain circles, there's those who are fighting against sin, trying to live the Christian life, and they look to a just that, a method, a certain approach to maybe Bible study or a certain approach to prayer. It may be a special way of ordering one's daily life. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. Not at all. There's nothing wrong with understanding prayer more fully or pursuing Bible study or disciplining one's daily life. That's, that's not bad. That's good. There's nothing wrong with keeping a list of items to pray for in a prayer journal or proceeding regularly through a personal program of Bible study or discipleship. But what I want to say is a method in and of itself, beloved, does not guarantee our holiness. It does not guarantee our sanctification. It does not guarantee that it's going to give us strength to do the right thing when the crisis comes. You think it's somebody like Martin Luther, who his experience when he was in the monastery before his conversion, he did all these things and more. He used a method that some thought would somehow make you more holy. And even though Luther fasted and he prayed and he kept vigils and he confessed his sins often for hours at a time, he was unable to find either peace or holiness in such practices. And his deliverance from sin came in quite an entirely different way. So there's nothing wrong with certain methods of Bible study and prayer. Hey, I'm all for that. We need more of that. But that in and of itself doesn't guarantee your sanctification. Secondly, some folks look for a formula. You know, they, they want a little formula. Just boil it down. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll go do it. Um, some little formulas are rather simplistic. You've probably heard them. You know, you just need to let go and let God. What does that mean? Well, you just need to give Jesus control of your life. Or let Jesus have the throne. Or just take each day by faith. Now all those are well-meaning, well-intended little phrases that people use to encourage a brother or sister in Christ. But the appeal of formulas is that they're, they're easy. I mean, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't you want a formula to cure sin in your life if I could give you a formula that worked? Who wouldn't want one? But they're often too easy. They're too simplistic. And in the end, they just don't work. Because in and of itself, there's no mere formula adequate enough to deal with the harsh realities of human life and sin. So whether it's a method or whether it's a formula, 
Or the third area here, people look to this often today in the church, they look for an experience. Believers seek some life-transforming experience other than salvation. A lot of times it's called the second blessing, it's called the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. And that experience is supposed to somehow mark a major advance in the Christian life. In other words, you get saved, you come to Jesus, but then you need this second dairy blessing of the Spirit to really kind of get a grasp on your Christianity and to really be a disciple of Christ. And a lot of times they'll even use our text in the text before it, chapter 7, and they'll, they'll use this as a proof text for such an experience. They'll say, well, look at Paul in Romans 7. I mean, he's dealing with the flesh. He's struggling. At one point he cries out what wretched man he is. And the Holy Spirit's not really talked about there much. But then you get to Romans 8. Boy, he's talking about the Spirit every other, every other verse. So, you know, that must be the key. That must be the key. This secondary blessing Well, we know that biblically doesn't line up with Scripture because either you have the Spirit of Christ or you don't. Either you have the Holy Spirit resident in your life or you, or you don't. And only those who know Christ, only those who have come to him by faith have that deposit of the Spirit in their life. Remember in verse 9... Of chapter 8, he says, basically, at the end, he says, if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? He does not belong to him. So this isn't something that you get in stages. When you come to Christ, he gives you all he's going to give you as far as the Spirit goes. But are we appropriating what we have? That's the key. And so you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, well, what's the proper approach to sanctification? If methods and formulas and experiences don't work, how, how can I have victory over sin in my life? How are we as Christians supposed to achieve victory over sin and grow in our holiness, which is what exactly Romans 8 expects of us? He starts off there in verse 12, so then, or therefore, some translations read. And what Paul is saying is, based on what I just told you, here's what you need to do. And that's what he did. He gave us all this information beforehand. The first occurrence here of therefore goes all the way back to Romans 5. We're not going to go through all that because we've already been there. After Paul had explained the gospel in chapters 3 and 4, he says, therefore, based on what I just shared with you, here's what should be happening in your life. As a matter of fact, everything we've been studying in Romans 5 to 8 has been working up to this point. Verses 12 and 13. And he wants us to know that based on the information that I just shared with you, that you need to therefore understand this. 
In each case, when he uses that word therefore, it introduces a a consequence, something that follows, something that was previously set in teaching. And what Paul is arguing is that Christians have an obligation. We have an obligation to live according to the Spirit rather than according to the sinful desires that we have within us. And for that reason, because of what he's just stated, because the Holy Spirit has joined them to Jesus Christ, we have to understand, first of all, we've been delivered from the wrath of God. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That God's wrath was set against us because of our sin. And now we're brought into an entirely different, new, fresh realm. The sphere of God's rule in our hearts. And then secondly, we've been given a new nature, he says. We've not just been delivered from God's wrath, but he, he literally transformed us. He made us something we weren't before. And he made us alive to spiritual things. You see that when someone comes to Christ. When they're transformed by God's Holy Spirit and the power of his word and the power of the gospel, all of a sudden, they're not the same person they used to be. They have new desires. They have new wants. They want to know certain things about God. They want to understand their faith more fully. They have a desire to study his word. All those things come into play once someone has been effectively and divinely saved by God. They've given a brand new nature. And then thirdly, they've been assured of an entirely different destiny. Once you come to Christ, you understand that, you know what, you're not destined to hell any longer. You're not destined to spend an eternity under the hand of God's wrath. But now you're forgiven. And that you will live forever in a place called heaven. See, these are things that God has done or will do for us as believers. And all that takes place through the sacrifice of Christ. Without the sacrifice of Christ, none of these things happen. That's why we, at least once a month, gather and remember the sacrifice of Christ. We remember, through communion, what he has done for us. Because he has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Do you understand that? Paul says, because God has done this for us, we have an obligation. He says, we are debtors in verse 12. We're not debtors to the old flesh. We don't owe it a thing. We're freed from that. For the first time in our life, we can live a life that's pleasing to God. Because he saved us. He transformed us. And now we have an obligation to live like God has lived, like Christ has lived. We must live for him each and every day. Let me say it this way. Everything that we have seen in Romans 8 up to this point has been a general description of a Christian. It really has. 
It's talked about his status, his present experience, his character, his future expectation. And now for the first time, Paul draws all of this to a conclusion. And he says basically that the work of God for us and in us presents us a very serious obligation. And that obligation is to live for God and not according to our own sinful desires. He states them kind of negatively here. He says, we are not to live according to the sinful nature and we're not to give reign to the misdeeds of the body. But on the positive side, it's very much implied. Instead of living according to the the sinful desires, we are obviously to live according to what? The spirit. Instead of giving reign to the fleshly body, we're to... Put the sins of the body to death, the Bible says. Instead of yielding the members of our our body to sin, we're to yield them to God for righteousness. Now, I know this doesn't sound familiar. It can. Because all you have to do is go all the way back to Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 11. He says, so you must also consider or reckon, count yourselves what? What does he say? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as who, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, look at what it says in verse 14, will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Paul's teaching about our union with Christ in that chapter. He was teaching that if we're Christians, we've been united with Christ in his death. And so that his death becomes our death. And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. We're a new creature in Christ. We're no longer who we used to be. I don't know about you, but that that, that should get you a little bit excited. That you have a new status before God. That you're changed. You're not who you used to be. You're a brand new person in Christ. And because of all that, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a calculation you make. Just like you were, if you were balancing your checkbook. You had $100 and you had a bill that you had to pay for $150. You better not write that check, right? It's not going to work. <laughs> The bill's bigger than what you have. Why? Because you calculated it. You looked at the facts. See, we need to know as believers that we can reckon ourselves dead to sin. That we no longer have to placate to its desires. That we don't have to give in. And so when he gets to Romans 8, that's exactly what he's telling us to do. And he says, it's not some formula, it's not some experience. But he says, it's the very role of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
the Holy Spirit that joins us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to live a life that's pleasing to Christ. So Paul says in verse 12 that it's our obligation. We're a debtor, not to the flesh, but it's our obligation to live according to the Spirit, not the flesh is what he says. If you're going to receive that kind of victory and achieve that kind of victory over sin, it's not going to be through some formula or through some whatever you come up with. It's going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you can do it. And that's what he says there in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, what do you do? You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, this isn't about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and and trying to figure out how to be more disciplined in your spiritual life. It's about basically giving up and saying, you know what, God, I can't do this. You have to do it through me. You have to do it through the power of your spirit. I mean, you know, your flesh cannot manufacture holiness that's pleasing to God. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, Paul said this. He said, I know that in me, in my flesh, he says, dwells what? No good thing. He doesn't say, well, there's some good there. I just got to dig harder to find it. He says, no, it's not there. There's not one good thing in our flesh. For to will is present in me, Paul says. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. In other words, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I can't do it. And see, the mistake we make so many times as Christians is we roll up our sleeves and sin, I'll show you. I'm not going to give in to you anymore. And we do it in the flesh. And we lose every time. Paul recognized very simply that apart from God, there was within himself no resource for doing good. Not one. Not a little itty-bitty part. And that's true of all of us. None of us have the capacity to gain victory over the flesh on our own. And we need to understand that. I think if we understood that simple truth, boy, the spiritual life would just open up for us. Matter of fact, in Romans 8, verses 5 and 8 there, he says, There, after the flesh, they do mind the things of the flesh. The carnal mind is what? Enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they are in the flesh, who are in the flesh, cannot please God. Apart from the Holy Spirit's power, beloved, a person is controlled by corruption. By corruption. The unregenerate person, the person without Christ, has no capacity whatsoever to deal with any kind of sin in their life. Now, you may have a different spectrum. I mean, there's some people that are just pure evil, and there's other people that our world would call they're morally good. But before a holy God, being morally good doesn't add up. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're falling short of something, that means there's a demarcation that God makes. And he says, if you want me to accept you, 
this is where you have to be. This is the line that you have to cross. And somehow we think if we try hard enough that we'll get there eventually. Just keep coming to church, just keep praying, just keep reading the Bible and just keep doing all these things that somehow we think is going to get us to that mark. And the Bible says, no, (laughs) you're not going to do it on your own. You need the power of the Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. And as Christians, we need to understand that that's something that we need to have ongoing in our life. See, the mistake we make is we become a Christian. All of our sins are forgiven, right? We feel great. We're going to save the world. And then we start living the Christian life by the flesh, (laughs) We start thinking somehow that if I just roll my sleeves up and try harder, that this sin thing will go away. So we have accountability groups and we have, you know, all kinds of counseling that goes on and all these kind of things. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying we're looking in the wrong direction. See, when the Holy Spirit enters a person in a person's life, that life changes. That life changes. It has to. Because it's not the old life. It's a new life. And with that change comes the capacity to overcome the flesh. Turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. You ever met somebody like that? Sometimes it's a lot easier to shoot off an email to somebody you're upset with than to call them on the phone or meet with them. (laughs) Because in the email, you can say all kinds of things that you'd never say in person. And that's about as unbiblical how to deal with a brother or sister in Christ as you can get. Call them on the phone if you can't meet with them personally. If you can meet with them personally, then meet with them personally. But Paul says, hey, you know, I I know you're understanding here. When I'm away from you, you seem more bold. But he says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So they were even accusing Paul of walking according to the flesh, living according to the flesh. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, hey, I got a human body just like you. That's what he's talking about. We are not, what? Waging war according to the flesh. What's he saying? I get it. There's a war going on. Good, evil, holiness, sin. But don't think I try to fight it according to the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh. He says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are what? Not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy what? Strongholds. 
See, God has given us incredible, powerful weapons to fight against sin. I just think a lot of believers don't understand what they are. But every one of those weapons is available through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, what do those weapons do? That's what he says in verse 5. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to what? To obey Christ. Paul did not conduct himself according to the flesh. Even though he lived in a human body, he didn't do that. He fought with spiritual weapons. Back in Romans chapter 7, we saw it in verse 14 and, and so forth. He cries out, you know, basically he gives this struggle, verses 14 through 23 that he's going on. Want to do the right thing, you can't do it. Boy, the thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing all this. Finally, he screams, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I mean, that's, you can kind of sense his anxiety here. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. You know, I believe that there's a, many Christians want to do what God wants them to do. They want to be obedient to God. They want to obey God. They don't like the guilt of having fallen in sin and having to go and ask for forgiveness. Who likes that? He wanted that, but he found something within him that was holding him back. And he says there in verse 25, thanks be to God through what? Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my, what's it say? Mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. We all have that experience. And today, in our text, in verses 12 to 13, Paul is basically saying, you know what? You need to kill sin, or it's going to kill you. If you've never read the book, The Mortification of Sin, I I, I highly recommend it to you. Just make sure you buy the the modern English version, because this guy was, you know, when he wrote originally, I mean, you're going to have a really hard time. Uh, it's in English, but it's the old English, and it's like, what's he saying, you know? But there's been several publications that have come out, and they've kind of adapted it to modern-day English so you can read it comfortably and understand what he was saying. But Paul tells us that the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So what's he saying? He's saying, you know what? You better be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Galatians chapter 6 verse 8, Paul writes, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh, what? Reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, there's only two ways to live. There's only two outcomes here. To live according to the flesh, which ends in eternal death. Or you can live according to the spirit, which ends in eternal life. You can't have, you know, part of your, your foot in the, in the flesh and part of it in the spirit. You're one or the other. 
And we've talked about this before. There's, there's either you're a believer in Christ and you're filled with his spirit or you're not. There's no gray area there. Charles Simeon, commentator, said this, either sin must be our enemy or God will be. That's it. Either sin is your enemy or God is. That's serious business. To kill your sin, remember your obligation is not to the flesh, but to the Lord. That's what he says in verse 12. So then, look at what he says, brethren. He wants us to understand that we're all in this together. He doesn't say, oh, you know, you, you poor, you know, unspiritual Christians down there. You, you know. No, he says, brethren, he includes himself. That we're under obligation to not to live to the flesh. He wants us to understand that there's an obligation we have to the Christ. Why is that? Because he bought us with his blood, the Bible says. So now we belong to him. We're not our own. His spirit now dwells within us. What's it mean to live according to the flesh? It means to live under the domination of the flesh, according to its desires, which are self-centered. They're opposed to God. They're not subject to his word. I remember speaking with one individual years ago, having recurring sin in his life. And every time I talked to him, I thought, you know, I just need to ask this guy where he's at. Because this was serious stuff. And I said, don't, you know, I turned to First John, and I said, you know, those who love the world, hate God, I shared that all with him. And I said, what do you think your problem is? And he looked right in my eyes, and he said, you know what, brother? I just love the world. I love the world. I said, you know what, brother? You're not my brother. <laughs> According to the authority of God's word, you're not a believer. Oh, I tried. No, you no, you didn't. No, sorry. Don't play that game with me. More seriously, don't play it with God. See, we need to be reminded that when God saves us, he transforms us. He changes us. One commentator says, it's tremendously important to grasp the import here of verse 12, because it teaches beyond all question that the believer still has sinful desires within himself, despite having been crucified with Christ. The flesh has yet to be eradicated. See, as long as we live in this sinful flesh, and as long as we live in this sinful world, we're going to have to deal with sin. Now, does God give us victory over sin? Well, he says he does. To kill your sin, you have to understand the horrific consequence if you do not kill it. Because it will kill you. That's what he says there in verse 13 of chapter 8. For if you are living according to the flesh, basically you must die. Or you will die, as the ESV puts it. The literal Greek says you are about to die. He's saying two things here. A life unchecked to sin leads to eternal death. 
When I talked to that individual, his life was unchecked. He just went down that road full bore. But he was still saying, oh, no, no, Jesus forgave me of my sins. (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, death is a very strong word for Paul to use. You think of it in stark contrast to life, which is promised to those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit and who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, he tells us. Note here that Paul did not say, if you don't kill your sins, you're going to lose some rewards in heaven. See that? He doesn't say that. He wants us to view this as mortal combat. Either you kill your sin or your sin will kill you. Not just with an early death, but with eternal death. Look over at Colossians chapter 3 because Paul says the exact same things in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. After talking about, well, I'll just start in verse 1. We'll put it in context. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. We spoke about this several weeks ago, having the right mindset. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a wonderful thing that is. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. All those are blessings that a Christian enjoys. And then Paul says, because of this information that I just shared with you, which are facts that are true for every believer, he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If you don't understand what he means, he gives us some examples. It's not a completed list, but it's pretty pretty close. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once, what? Walked when you were living in them. But verse 8 tells us, but now, now what? Now that you're a Christian, now that you have the spirit of God, now that you've been transformed, now that you're no longer under sin's dominion and penalty, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And here there is no Greek, nor Jew, circumcised, nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And you know what? If you have a complaint with somebody else, make that complaint known. Well, it says forgive each other. (laughs) Doesn't say go and even whine about it. Wow. It says forgive them. Why should you do that, Paul? Because the Lord has forgiven you, has he not? (laughs) Who do you think you are that you you take offense at somebody's wrongdoing to you? You know, we need to learn as Christians sometimes to not be so timid when it comes to taking offense at what people do or say. 
Because when we take offense at maybe what a brother or sister says or how they treat us, we get our feelings hurt. A lot of times that leads to some form of anger. And a lot of times that leads to you responding in a way that's not honoring to Christ. I get it. They offended you. Okay. What are we called to do? We're called to extend grace. Extend grace. Well, you don't understand. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Unless your, your situation adds up to what Christ went through. I don't even need to talk to you about it. We're too quick to take offense, beloved. We need to extend grace. I'm not saying you just lay down and let people walk all over you. We're not called to do that either. But we need to be careful with what the Bible here tells us to do and how we're living our Christian life. He continues there in Colossians... And he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. (laughs) Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonishing somebody is basically graceful criticism, you might say. But it's done with grace. Okay, it's done with grace. It's done with love. Look, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why would you do that if if, if you have a complaint against somebody? Because you realize that the grace of God was first extended to you. Thank God that, that Christ doesn't treat me justly. Because of my sin, I'd be in hell forever. But he extends grace to me through Christ. He closes off there in verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. In case you didn't hear him the first time, whatever you do, everything, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he goes on throughout Colossians and he basically says, here's what this looks like. Talks about Christian households and marriages and raising kids and all kinds of things. See, if Christians are saved by grace, not by works, We're eternally secure. And because of that, that's why we should be killing our sin. This isn't something that we we do to get God to like us more. Our relationship with God is sealed. John Piper said this, putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, the daily practice of killing Sin in your life is the result of being justified and the evidence that you are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. He goes on and he says this. You are not, if you are not at odds with sin, you are not at home with Jesus. 
Not because being at odds with sin makes you at home with Jesus, but because being at home with Jesus makes you at odds with sin. James Boyce says, Paul is saying that if you live like a non-Christian, dominated by a sinful nature, rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, you will perish like a non-Christian. Because you are a non-Christian. Please understand, sin is not neutral. And it's definitely not nice. Sin always destroys both for time and eternity. That indwelling sin is like a lion. It may be nice at first, but at some point it turns on you. And the results are never, ever pretty. There was a Frenchman, rather rich gentleman... He kept a two-year-old lion in his home as a pet. <laughs> One night in June 1977, they called him Baron, the guy's name, Baron Richard. He tried to make his pet go into the bathroom where he usually spent the night. But the lion refused to go. Leaped on its master and within minutes had clawed him to death. See, that's what sin is like. First you think, oh, this is not going to hurt anything. Not hurting anybody. To kill your sin, you need to put it to death by the Spirit of God. That's the only way. That's the only hope you have. Galatians 5.17 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And down in verse 24 and 25 of Galatians 5, he tells us how to resolve this. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit entered into your life. You have all the power you need to be enabled to live in victory over Satan, over demons, over the flesh, over sin. Galatians chapter 5 verse 18 tells us exactly how. It says, do not be drunk with wine. Do not be controlled with wine. This isn't a treatise on drinking alcohol. He's using wine as an example. He's saying when you drink too much wine, what happens? That wine, that alcohol controls you. Most of us have probably experienced that at some point in our life. Remember when I was young, I went out with some friends. I was very shy in high school. Put some alcohol in me, man. Turned into a raging maniac. It was not myself. I still remember being embarrassed the next day at school when they said, man, you should see what you were doing last night. You, you know, you said that. I did that? Really? I, I remember blushing as a result. Why? Because that alcohol was controlling me. But he says, don't be, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled with alcohol, but, which is excess, he says. But be filled with what? 
the Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's continuous. We get the Spirit of Christ when we become a believer. He baptizes us into the body of Christ through the power of the Spirit. We have everything that we need pertaining to live a godly life in Christ. The question is, are we appropriating the power of the Spirit on a daily basis? Or are we just trying to roll up our sleeves and with a little bit of elbow grease, hopefully we'll defeat this sin? God's saying, no, you won't. You can't. You need the Holy Spirit's power in your life. You need to bring yourself into subjection under the Spirit's power. You need to be filled with the Spirit. What's that mean? Controlled. This is an ongoing thing. You know, we're controlled by whatever fills our mind. That's what we're controlled by. You know, it's the old adage, garbage in, garbage out, right? Same thing. And so he's saying here, if you let the Spirit of God control your mind, it's going to be renewed in the Spirit, and you're going to manifest godly behavior on a continuous basis. But if you're controlled by your flesh, well, you see the results. So he says, be filled with the Spirit. This isn't some ecstatic experience that he's saying to have. It simply means to allow our life to be under the control of the Spirit. And it's continuous. It's like breathing. I like it. Call it spiritual breathing. You know, when, when I'm faced with a decision, a temptation, sometimes I do the right thing by the Spirit of God. Sometimes I don't by the flesh. I'll give in. I'll yield to sin. And when I yield to sin, what happens? The Spirit convicts me. What do I need to do? I need to go to God and, and confess, look, I blew it in this area. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I, I pray that your Spirit would take back control of, of my life. Because when I sin, the one thing I know for sure is the Spirit of God is not in control of my life. Because the Spirit of God would not do anything sinful. And so we're to be continually filled with God's Spirit. When you sin and you will sin, what are you to do? You go to God and you confess. Lord, you know what? I blew it. Here's my life afresh. Thank you for Christ dying on the cross. Thank you that I'm secure in you. And, and, and Lord, I thank you that you've given me the Holy Spirit to, to take control back over my life. I yield it to you now. And you go on from that point. Two minutes later, you might be right back confessing. I don't know. But the idea is, is that's going to happen until the day we die, beloved. That word filled is often used in the Gospels to talk about a particular attitude or a feeling. It talks about things, people being filled with hate, filled with bitterness, filled with rage. Well, what does that mean? They're controlled by that emotion. And what Paul was saying here is, you know what? Rather than be controlled by some emotion, be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. 
And what will happen, verses 19 to 21, he says the same thing here as he said in the other text. Over in Colossians, speak yourselves psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Make melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things, submitting yourselves one to another. Every relationship you have, beloved, will be affected when you're filled with God's spirit. And I pray that we would clearly understand that and practice that. Quickly, seven steps to kill your sin. First of all, purpose to be godly and discipline yourself for that purpose. Make that a matter of prayer. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So you have to decide at some point, my aim is to become a man or woman of God so that my life glorifies God. I'm done playing with this sin stuff. I want to I grow in my walk with Christ. Secondly, kill your sin at its root. And it will not bear its deadly fruit. Owen said this, You can knock the fruit off the tree, but if you don't want it to grow, you've got to cut the tree down at the roots. See, sin begins on the heart or thought level. If you cut it out there, it won't go any further. No one ever committed adultery without first thinking about it. So whether it's lust, greed, selfishness, pride, cut it off right there. Don't entertain it. Thirdly, cry out to God for deliverance and take whatever action you must to flee temptation. And I mean whatever action. Psalm 50 verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Paul writes to the first, first Corinthians 6.18, Flee immorality, run away. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee useful lusts. The problem with folks in the church today, I'll say mostly men in the church today, is that rather than fleeing immorality and fleeing youthful lusts, we're running to them. <laughs> Fourthly, set your mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. Fifthly, spend time, obviously, daily in the word of God. Sixthly, keep the cross in view at all times to deepen your love for Christ, your hatred of sin, and your desire to glorify God. And then lastly, walk each day in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know that these messages are kind of sobering. They're, they're sobering for me as I prepare each week because you show me my own sinfulness, my own inability to live a life that's honoring before you all the time. And yet during those times when I fail you, I'm so much reminded of your grace, of your forgiveness that we have in Christ. It's because of his sacrifice on Calvary that we are even able to be here meeting in this place. And so, Father, you know each heart that's gathered here this morning. Father, you know the burdens that they may be carrying. Lord, I know that your gospel, your spirit has the power through the power of your word to transform the human heart, to open up blinded eyes to the truth of the gospel, that we're all in this together. We all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. We all need a savior. By the way, 
We can't be our own Savior. That's the message this morning, so stop trying. Give up. Give in to the Lord, to the power of His Spirit. He wants to forgive you. He wants to make you a new person in Christ. And for believers, I pray that we would understand more fully how to live a life that is pleasing to you in every way. That we can live a life that is filled with your spirit. Not filled with the guilt of sin and failure. But filled with the victory that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.